is bitten by a werewolf and lives, becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, don't hand me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf bit you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. That is awesome. <laughs> For so many reasons. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to The Fear of God, yes. episode 37. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Reed Lackey. And I am your other host, Nathan Ralph. We are very, very happy to be here with you. We have been Clearly. spending a lot of time recently at, uh, you know, sitting in... The springtime for Shyamalan, wonderful goodness fun? and amazingness. Oh, it was such a great series. I'm gonna be. I know. I, I, I know. Fun. I had my little lead in on signs, but I'm gonna be really despondent the whole episode. You know, just today, just because I'm like, <laughs> well, it's not Shyamalan. You know, it's like the fun has left the <laughs> Everything building. Everything pales in yes, comparison. Yes. Oh my god, that was a very fun great. time. Hey, you've got a survey thing, right? You've got like some fun. Feedback. I do, I do. So, um, listeners, uh, at the very beginning of Springtime for Shyamalan, uh, filled out a little survey that we had already recorded all the episodes, so we, we didn't have a chance to tag in with what the results were, but. Shh, don't give away the magic, Reed. Don't give away the magic. I don't know, tell right? them how this made. <laughs> so I had, I had asked five simple little questions just to kind of get a feel for how people were feeling about it. We're going to run through those right now for the, for those of you as a kind of a debrief of springtime for Shyamalan. This is, uh, this is the listener selected, listener voted results of our springtime for Shyamalan official fear of God survey. So question Ooh, number one was, a long title. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> what do you consider M. Night Shyamalan's best film to be? So, um, it was actually much closer race than I thought it was going to really? be. Yeah. Second place is actually. Stuart Little was. Was just creeping up there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like that little writer he is. Oh, man. The, the second and third place each only received one vote less than the winner. So it was a really like tight, tight race. The official winner was, of course, the sixth sense, but. I just have to comment because it was so close that Unbreakable and Signs were almost neck and neck for it. That uh, that they they all received a plethora I, somehow. Of I would votes. have thought the happening would have proven itself the dark horse we all know it is and overtaken all of them. I mean, just yeah, got zero votes. Cheese and crackers, cheese and crackers. Come on. All right, what's our number two? Oh well. <laughs> um, so the second question posed in our 
springtime for Shyamalan, fear of God, uh, Shyamalan themed questionnaire and survey to our listeners, um, was what is Shyamalan's most underrated film? And we like ties or, or close, close runnings here at this. At our listeners do, evidently. You know, it's kind of that whole first is last, last is first, first among equals kind of idea. So, um, <laughs> the most, the voted on most underrated Shyamalan film was a tie between signs and the village, mm. which is interesting. I would, I don't know that I would personally say signs is underrated. I think in my observation, most folks, rate signs you know what i mean like it's considered mm. like when you say are in a conversation about shallow movies six cents unbreakable signs you know those movies like those are the ones i would right. associate right, people right, right. considering i'm gonna right. i'm gonna i'm gonna side with the village on this one because if it's underrated i do think that's a very underrated movie but hey the people have spoken and it's a tie <laughs> signs in the village so who who am I? <laughs> well, and I will briefly cite your own experience of how at the very beginning of Springtime for Shyamalan, you said that you thought The Village was a, or that you thought The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable were great movies and The Signs was only a good movie. And then after you rewatched it, you, you gained a lot well, of affection no, for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, No, no, no. I, I'm not trying to imply I don't think they're good movies. I'm just saying in terms of when I think of the word underrated, I think like, what do people... Yeah, whatever. You're just trying to feed my words back to me. <laughs> what what you described me as saying feels different than what I'm trying to say, but I'm not going to articulate oh, it well, oh. so we'll just move on to number three. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so number three was the one I had the most fun with, and that was just, we want to imagine if M. Night Shyamalan was only a screenwriter, hashtag Stuart Little, if he was only a screenwriter, which of these alternate reality versions of his films would you most want to see? So I took each of his films and I selected an alternate director uh, who would maybe have helmed that film. Uh, we had a couple of fun little options. This is an impre sort of impressively imaginative question, Riri. I give you props. I well, I I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I I, uh, I really enjoyed coming up with those. So uh, it was a runaway. We had a runaway favorite, but I'm going to name the top three uh, because I asked our listeners to select three. So coming in at number three would be people who want to see the Coen Brothers Tackle Split, which I think would be wow. really be, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The Coen Brothers Tackling Split. I just, I just, you know, uh, James McAvoy running around, don't you know? You know, like all these. <laughs> all these. Um, but the, uh, and then uh, coming in second place, which I, I really would, I, I really would like to see this movie. Like, I, I wish in some alternate universe that this movie existed. It might. Because this is it the only one of... an alternate universe. That's possible. Because um, this is the only one of these choices that I actually think would be an improvement on the film. Um, and that is, uh, people wanted to see what would have happened to The Happening had David Fincher directed it. So, um, wow. that would have been, that would have been kind of interesting. David Fincher's The Happening. It probably would have been, first, you know, first, a little darker. First rule of The Happening is don't talk about The Happening. <laughs> but, you know, and I kind of expected this, the runaway favorite, people would have loved to have seen Christopher Nolan's Unbreakable. So, that was the, uh, that was the number one huh. pick. Well, see, yeah. what's interesting to me about that is, in some ways, Unbreakable is the proto-Nolan superhero movie. Right. I mean, yeah, in, yeah. Certain, in, a, in, a, in a certain regard, I wouldn't disagree with that. All right. Well, the fourth on our five question springtime for Shyamalan fear of God listener survey <laughs> for 2017 <laughs> springtime um, is which Shyamalan film would you be willing to give a second or possibly first chance? Which Shyamalan film would you be willing to give a second chance to? 
an- the answer, as voted on by our listeners, was Lady in the Water. Yep, that was. But, the, I mean, what were and, they, that, and that one was not a close race. Like that was most people voted did you, Lady in the Water. Uh, it's been a while since I looked at the survey. Were all of his movies listed as options? Every single one of them. Yeah, mm. every single one of them. Um, but again, the question's primarily based around like, hey, second, give it a second chance. Right. I said possibly first because some people may have just skipped right. movies entirely. But yeah, which movie would you be willing to give a second chance? Most people picked uh, Lady in the Water. Although second place with that, not it wasn't a close race, but second place was After Earth. Because um, a lot of people, I think, had just checked out on Shyamalan by then. And people were like, oh, I'd be willing to go and, and see what, what After Earth was all about. But I would definitely say that even though we've already talked at length about how it has its problems, Lady in the Water... Deserves a, a reassessing. It doesn't mean that you're going to walk away thinking it's a great film, but you're going to walk away, I think, latching on to things that are more than you expected it to. But our listeners got it right, is what I'm saying. Oh, They're oh, smart, oh discerning so there, was a, there was a right answer to that one. Um, <laughs> the survey was about us, not you. Um, so, um, yes, read, bring yeah, us so on. The, what was the last, uh, last entry on this little survey? So the the final the final question, and it's fitting for what our episode is today for us returning to this. I said, choose a genre that you would like to see given the M. Night Shyamalan treatment, um, you know, Westerns, political thrillers, romantic comedies or, you know, something else. And uh, hands down, our listeners want to see him tackle a good old fashioned monster movie like a vampire or a werewolf or, uh, you know, a creature feature or something. They want to see him tackle a straightforward monster film. And I think. He would do a really, really good job with that. It's not time for us to to dive into our main episode, but given that, I thought it was appropriate that that was the yes, that was the last answer. Well, hey, that. you know, before before we bid farewell to our friend M Knight, do you know what the M stands for? Should you just make it up? No, it's Minaj. Oh, that makes that makes sense. <laughs> you didn't know I would have so, that answer. So, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it makes perfect <laughs> sense that you would have that answer. You are answer man. Yeah, it's it's you know it's Minaj. Knight is uh Knight is not what he was christened with. He picked that. Like he selected Knight. He specifically chose Knight to be a part of his name. And it's interesting, like if you were to Google search just the word Knight, I think the top entry is like that novel by Ellie Vizel. Um, and then I can't remember what the second option is, but I think the third or fourth option is M. Night Shyamalan. If you just Google the word night, like surely he's synonymous. Surely one of them is opposite of day. You would think. (laughs) No, everybody knows what that is. Nobody would be Googling that. (laughs) These days. But yes, but before we bid our good friend Minaj Night Shyamalan a fond (laughs) farewell until, uh, and actually this is, this is appropriate. Read. We have not been able on the show yet to comment yet on this new wonderful announcement come February oh, 2019 man. when we get the completion of this trilogy with Unbreakable and then Split as of two months ago, three months ago, and now culminating in the appropriately lovingly titled Glass what oh, a, I cannot wait. What a perfect. Oh. That's really perfect. And I did, I did. It really is. Um, I did have to sort of eat my words a little bit because I, on our episode involving Split, quite declared, clearly I'm not the answer man, uh, but quite, um, declaratively stated that, um, Anya Taylor Joy, I didn't think would appear in this third movie. Oh, it just didn't yeah. seem to make a whole lot of sense that she would to me, but she is definitely, uh, on the cast list for this. As are all three of those That's, leads. It's going to be incredible. Hey, I don't know if you saw this. I think it just hit 
uh, a few minutes before you and I haven't even had a chance to pre-brief it. Did you see they'd released a tagline for the film already? Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah. I, In real time. What is yeah, it? Yeah, it was. Um, so, of course, the movie's title is Glass and the tagline is people in his house shouldn't throw stones. You. <laughs> so, so, listeners. Wait, 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 wait. There was another one. There's another one. It's two posters. It's two posters. Oh, my, oh my God. And the other one just says half full. You're okay. Okay. I don't know which I don't know which I despise more. The the fact that you had me actually thinking they'd released a tagline for the film in my ignorance or or the fact that your selections were that uproariously ridiculous. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You're making me want to split. Oh man. That was beautiful. That I just like that was real time on air. Got you. That's awesome. Your com- your commitment to that because <laughs> listeners don't know that I can see your face and I know how good of a poker face you had building up to that. Like oh, I wasn't your, looking your at you. I knew. I had to look at my. Oh. I had to look at my notes to make sure I wasn't looking at you. Or I would have cracked up. That is. Oh man, that was yeah. That was that was pretty funny. Well, okay, so. I don't even think we said it at the top of the show, but the, the, this show, what we're doing is we're having conversations about, uh, the intersection between faith and the horror genre. So, uh, we bring you that episode every single week. We had just, we had just finished our springtime for Shyamalan series that we'd done. And, uh, before we dive into the other year long series that we're doing, which you have another episode installment of at this very moment, um, we do have a bit of sad news. We have bid farewell to acclaimed director and director of one of the greatest horror films uh, in cinema history, uh, The Silence of the Lambs. We have bid farewell to Jonathan Demme, a really strong director. I'd seen a few things that he directed, most notably Silence of the Lambs, but uh, I'm also a very big fan of Philadelphia. I think Philadelphia is a pretty powerful film. Uh, I probably need to revisit Beloved to see, you know, how I feel about it, given a little bit of time and distance. But he was a very... A uh, prolific filmmaker and a very well-respected and beloved filmmaker, and he will be very missed. The reason I'm mentioning it specifically, other than just to to give the the tender note of of rest in peace, is uh, that in in light of his passing, as we did for William Peter Blatty and as we did for Bill Paxton, uh, we will likely be rearranging our schedule in the coming weeks just to uh, to allow to insert a conversation about the Silence of the Lambs, which is an icon uh, uh, in in horror cinema. So uh, d- just wanted to tell the listeners a heads up to be looking for that. Um, That's exciting. I mean, it's not exciting that he passed away. It is exciting to revisit that film. Yeah, it's it, it holds up so, so wonderfully. It's a very powerful film. So um, he will be greatly missed, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that when we have our, our episode about him. But one more quick thing, and then we're bouncing back and forth between light and heavy here right now, but I as we're recording this, just like last week or a couple weeks ago, Bates Motel ended. And I could not have been more thrilled about the way that show resolved, the way it played out. Uh, listeners, if you have not checked out Bates Motel for whatever reason, I can't encourage you enough to go check it out. It's only 50 episodes. Um, they had a tight 10 episode season, only five seasons, very, told a very focused story, a very rewarding story. The first few seasons, um, are, are good. 
you might be watching them and saying like, wow, why was Reed so impressed with this? But by the time you get to the end of season three, all of season four and season five, you'll understand why my my affection is so rabid for it. I absolutely love. Is that love why that you're series. wearing a dress now? Is that why you're wearing a dress right now while we record? You know, in, the, in uh, phew, yeah, let's just go ahead and call it that. <laughs> let's go ahead and call it that reason. <laughs> but, Man. Um, uh, speaking, of, speaking of TV, can I recommend something to you? I can't, I'm not sure, gonna sure. It. We're going to recommend it to the people. Um, give the people what they That's want. That's right. Because you know. But your talk of Bates Motel made me think of television, made me think of Reed. The Leftover Season 3 is in full throttle. Oh, my goodness. Such a wonderful, wonderful... Uh, uh, I wish... It makes me... The show makes me wish that we were doing a general podcast about general subjects so that we could just do a deep dive on The Leftovers because it is such a wonderful show. It's amazing. Such an amazing show. It's amazing. Um, if you aren't watching The Leftovers, you are... Now, uh, you know, its first season is extremely, extremely heavy. So, if you watch it, yes. just know that. Um, I like it. I don't know about you, Reed, but I like it a lot, though. Yes, it is. No, I like it. Yeah. Almost unmercifully heavy. Um, but it does lighten up a little bit in the second season. And the second season is considered by many critics to be some of the best TV out there. Um, anyway, great show. Uh, worth everyone's attention. So anything else, Reed? Anything else? So you got, you know, your, I you, think got your, you, got, nearly- you got your dress on. You're howling at the moon. Like it is a crazy <laughs> episode. We forgot our front of the episode bumper until 20 minutes in like it is crazy times <laughs> here at the fear of god are we ready to move into our movie are we ready let's let's go ahead let's go ahead and pick up um let's go ahead and pick back up with our year-long series we're doing a monthly series we obviously took last month off to devote some time to m night Shyamalan, but um we are picking back up we do uh one film per month from the catalog of the classic iconic universal monster films we've already covered dracula and Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, we are also companioning these films with uh, an all, uh, another more recent film, and we'll talk about what companions with today's entry in a little bit. But uh, if there were, you know, a big three of all of the Universal monsters, then unquestionably you've got Dracula, you've got Frankenstein. So today's film, of course, if you if you hadn't guessed by the uh, you know probably forgotten it by now by my silly little howl at the beginning, um, we are discussing 1941's uh, George Wagner directed The Wolfman. Hey, Reed. So Nathan. No, I'm yeah. gonna go first. Did you do you have a and I'm, I may be getting ahead of us for next week, but do you have a favorite wolf person movie like your story? Oh, like a werewolf movie, right? Yeah. Right, so yeah. Um, so bit of a uh, sideways spoiler, more of an elimination spoiler for next week. So, um, I wanted kind of to talk about this movie and maybe we still will, uh, at some point in our show. But yeah, unquestionably my favorite werewolf movie is American Werewolf in London. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I think it's wonderful. Um, it's funny. It's fun. Uh, it's, it's incredibly inventive in terms of the, the makeup effects and the, um, just the the general rhythm and pacing of the story. I wanted to make it the companion film for for this week, but when we talk about what we did select for for this week, um, it'll make a little bit more sense as to why we we went with that. But yeah, my unquestionable like number one with a bullet for me in terms of werewolf movies is American Werewolf in London. Number one with a silver silver bullet. bullet. Hey. Ah. Uh-huh. Speaking of which, speaking Whoa. of which, uh, uh, silver bullet. 
an adaptation of Stephen King's story, Cycle of the Werewolf, is actually very good. Oh, yeah? It's pretty 80s. It's a little cheesy, a little dated, but I like it a lot. It's very, very good. It would make a top five for me if we we're making a big broad list. With Teen Wolf 2 coming squarely in at number two. So, I have seen Teen Wolf 2. I'm sure you have. It, it would not make no? the... It, it, no? No. It would Teen Wolf 1. List. I like Michael J. Fox a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Underworld 15. <laughs> oh, no, my God. Those movies are terrible. Oh, threw up in my mouth a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So, what, do you have one? Uh, Thriller by Michael Jackson. <laughs> no. <You're> d- <laughs> I'm really not kidding. I mean, yeah. I like that a lot, but, you know, it's it's kind of its own cinematic quality to it, but... Um, I'm going to count it. He turns into a werewolf uh, right, in front exactly, of Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I'm going to count it. Uh, Prisoner, no. Prisoner of Azkaban. That's, you know, the other one. Okay. You can count. You can count Prisoner okay. of Azkaban. Okay. Um, oh. But no, so as, as I always like to do when we're talking with these universal monster movies, uh, you've never seen any of them, so I always want to get your impressions first. What what did you think about this one? Um, if I know it's been a while, but if, like, I know as we're going, I, I, my proclivity towards wanting to do lists, I, I would love to have you, you know, rank these. What's, you know... Where does Wolfman fall in the um, in the ones we've covered so far, the ones you've seen? I think in the Reed Lackey list-making uh, school, I would put Bride of probably at the top of the list, if, if we're going That's in descending I, order here. Um, you know, I think maybe Dracula and Frankenstein would be a bit neck and neck. <laughs> wow. Wow. I love when I just walk into a ridiculously bad joke. It just happened there. That was that I, was not I planned. That was too. there was no notes there. That was purely no, I could tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> I got I gotta be um you know, I gotta be frank. I, I did not Frankenstein. Wolf, wolf. Yeah, see? I did just zing zing zing. <laughs> um oh, friend. Um I just I, I didn't find much to enjoy about Wolfman. I, I didn't care for it oh, a whole wow. lot. Yeah. Like it was uh it was just okay. Um mm. uh we can we can delve into actual stuff of the movie, but before we do that, I I think it was funny. I had the thought, and as someone who loves the Marvel movies, my yeah. thought was, I wonder if this is what it feels like for people who hate the Marvel movies. I don't hear me, I didn't hate Wolfman. But as in like oh, right, right. You're right. like, okay, yeah, it's an origin story. How are you gonna turn into Wolfman? How long is it gonna take for you to get there? Oh yeah, you're a wolf now. Okay. You know, it was like it, there was this <laughs> right. real kind of feeling like and honestly, I well, I don't I don't mean to walk into likes dislikes so you can stop me, but I, I can start talking about that if you're ready for that. Uh, I have a few trivial bits, but I, I can blend those with likes, dislikes, because I don't have many likes, dislikes. Well, honestly, I just thought, at least for the first half of the movie, Lon Chaney was about as compelling as cardboard. Um, he just, <laughs> you know, so, so to, to, to <laughs> pull the fangs out a little bit. Um, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty harsh. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, well, like, because uh, I was thinking about this with these universal movies, you know, Dracula, you've got Bella Lugosi, who is just so good. In that role. I mean, oh, that is just, oh, yeah, yeah. That is Incredibly just a quality performance. performance and all the rest of the stuff can be kind of cheesy, but he's just so fun to watch. It kind of, right, you kind of, right. you kind of go with it. Frankenstein is such a unique character that, you know, it's, that's kind of interesting. Um, Bride of Frankenstein just takes what was good about that first one and, and just capitalizes on it. I just felt like Lon Chaney just was not. Uh, just, just did. I, I, he just didn't do anything for me. 
Um, and the movie itself was just okay. G- give me your trivia. Yeah. Give me your trivial bits because I've got a little list of stuff here, but I-, I want you to. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Well, I, uh, I'll, I'll keep this kind of brief because we've already, you know, we, we spent some time with some other stuff. Um, the, the, the only main things that I wanted to point out, first of all, it was that, that the Wolfman, despite being sort of the big icon in the Universal Monster catalog, was not the first time that they had tried to make a werewolf movie. Uh, they had tried six years earlier to, to make one called Werewolf of London. And it was, it was, it was a good film. Uh, and in fact, in modern times, some, many critics consider it to be better than this film. But, uh, it didn't really take off. It wasn't very popular. So, you know, six years later in 1941, they tried again, uh, just to approach something a little bit more straightforward. That Werewolf of London had a feel much more akin to like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde than, sure. uh, than people were really looking for. And so this definitely does not have that, that specific sort of tone or, or, um, framework to its narrative. So, so they tried again and this one was much more successful, much more popular. They didn't think that it, they thought it might not be because it was released, uh, in 41 and they thought that audiences were not going to want to go see a horror film after the attacks on Pearl Harbor. But, uh, ironically or surprisingly, I should say, uh, this film became one of the highest grossing films of 1942. And it's interesting. This, I don't want to divert us into themes, but I just want to make a comment about that, that I think that, that trend holds true. That when people think like, oh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of scary things happening in the world around us. I think that's the time where people kind of want to see a scary movie because they want to cathartically purge some of these, these anxieties that sure. they're feeling and, and horror films, uh, lend themselves to doing that. So, so I thought well, that was especially, kind of especially but, because, you know, you are dealing with monster movies, which, which are their own version of escapism. You know, I don't know right. that you go through something like, you know, a national tragedy and then go watch the leftovers, which is not really escapist. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very much right. <clears throat> emotional, emotionally traumatizing. Whereas, you know, yes, Certainly. categorically, these are scary movies, but, you know, kind of the monster element makes them a little more easy to detach from the real world. Yeah, exactly. I, I couldn't agree more with that. And what what is interesting about this film is that most people, if you were to just select somebody, not a horror fan or, or uh, doesn't have to be a horror fan, and say, hey, what do you know about werewolves? They're going to rattle off a few things. They're probably going to say, like, well, they, they transform under a full moon. Uh, they might know about silver being damaging to them and silver bullets, uh, that if you're bitten by one, you turn into one. Uh, they're going to know all those things. Every single bit of that lore came from this film. Like it was, it was an invention of the screenwriter. It wasn't based on a previous book. Oh, really? It was, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not based on any pre-existing material. Not present in the the earlier film that we talked about, Werewolf of London. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm going to butcher his last name, but Kurt Siodmak, I think, is his uh, is the way you pronounce his last name. But he wrote the screenplay for it and is and subsequently created probably eighty to ninety percent of the werewolf lore that we are familiar with today. Uh, it all stems from this film and it all stems from his imagination, uh, which I find really interesting and, and kind of, kind of impressive that it's lingered so long for just being, just being that one little element prior to that in literature, werewolves had been featured, but literary werewolves had to become a werewolf by like making a pact with the devil or making a pact with a demon and they could transform whenever they wanted to. Um, so this film institutes those things of like an aversion to silver, uh, the transformation under a full moon, 
you know, all of those kinds of things. The, the transmission, which we'll get into this in themes, but the transmission of werewolfism, lycanthropy by biting someone or by being attacked by a werewolf. That's all, uh, from this film. So wow. that's, that, that concludes our little trivial bits, uh, for, for this day. So do you, do you, um, you know, do you, do you like this movie? I mean, like, I sound like I hate it. I don't hate it. I just found it even some of its more campier elements in terms of datedness. It wasn't quite as fun to me to watch as some of the other ones had been. Right. Because I don't know. It just anyway. So yeah, I'm curious, you know, when you consider that, do you, do you enjoy it? Yeah. Um, so like when you're looking at the big, when you're looking at the big seven icons, I mean, Universal made 30 to 40 motion pictures in their, you know, sort of monster era, as it were. Um, but the big, the big seven of them are, Dracula, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Wolfman, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Of those seven, Wolfman would land for me in the the lower half. I, I you know, I, I don't want to sully listeners on where we're going for these for these future conversations. But yes, Wolfman I find to be a bit clunky, a bit too on the nose. I think it's got a lot of merit in its second half. The second half, I mean, we're talking about a seventy minute movie, so right, it's very brief. Right. But the but the last half of the film is where that's the part where I would really start to say, no, I like this. I sure, enjoy sure. this. Yeah, yeah. Um, it all takes place in the second half of the film. The first half of the film, I just, I just sort of get through whenever I watch it because as I said, it is so brief. Um, but yeah, the, the first, first half of it feels a little clunky, feels like it's, you know, you're, I didn't think of it before, but your comparison to a, a Marvel origin story. Uh, is is oddly appropriate because it's like I keep spending the movie like okay can we just get to the wolf like can right, we, you know, can right, we just right. get to the part yeah. where he's gonna transform and do all this stuff um so yeah I really kind of resonate with your with your example there your comparison um but no I do I do like it I mean there's none of these films that I don't like but Dracula I get really excited about the Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein I get really excited about I cannot wait for you to see the Invisible Man I don't want to uh, you know skew your <laughs> opinion too much but <laughs> yeah um. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to skew your opinion too much, but I can't wait for you to watch that film because um, I I love that film. The, but yeah, I enjoy all of them. I think the biggest thing that I would that I like about this film is mostly just sort of the atmosphere, and I'll get into it in themes. But some of the sort of poignancy in the last like fifteen twenty minutes of it, those are the things that I really latch onto in terms of what I walk away from sure. in the film. Well, maybe it was, um, <clears throat> maybe it was just a subconscious thing that as a naturally hairy large man, I kept wondering, what's the big deal? <laughs> Why is this, <laughs> you know? His transformation scene, I was like, that's just me without a month of grooming. Like, why is, that's what's going on? Shadow. Right, right, right. Like, why is everyone wow. running afraid? Because <laughs> that just looks like a normal dude to me. That's what I see in the mirror. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Uh, and, you know, I'm, uh, audiences don't have the, uh, our listening audience doesn't have the, uh, the advantage of seeing how massively impressive your beard is right I'll now. I'll post like a picture it is, of it to the, to the Twitter feed tonight. It is, uh, it is really staggering. It's quite <laughs> stunning, actually. Um, well, so some other, a couple, I love, I wrote this down. This is not a quote from the movie, but I did put it in quotes. I love Larry talking to, yeah. what's the female character's name? Uh, oh, she is Gwen. Gwen. I love when, like, this is so 1941, I guess, <laughs> when he's talking to her in the store. And what I wrote down was, I'm just a good old fashioned peeping Tom. Don't oh. mind me. I mean, it is so like, no, there's, this is not okay right. on any level. Like, 
why is this just sort of like in a movie ostensibly that's a horror movie that's not the scary part that this (laughs) giant that this giant dude who has no you can probably explain this away to me but i missed it in the viewing of it who has zero uh non-american affectation is the son of a much smaller british man um, oh, oh yes and, oh absolutely and, uh, which, and honestly like the first 10 minutes i was like i swear they they referenced each other as parent and child but i did i make that yeah. up i i really was <laughs> wrestling with it i was like i kept waiting no not no lie i kept waiting for him to say dad or pop or something just to validate did i hear what i thought i heard anyway right so that's right. a whole thing well go ahead Oh, well, I was just going to say, like, no, that that is odd. Like, it's it's extremely odd. It makes no and, sense uh, whatsoever. No, no. And, and that actually wasn't originally supposed to be his character. His character was supposed to be. And this is why they have that odd scene in the telescope, the peeping Tom right. thing that you're that you're talking about. So originally in the original draft of the, of the script, um, they actually uh, he was he was just someone who had come to install the man's telescope. <laughs> And someone who had come to repair and install the man's telescope. And they're like, we gotta, we gotta give him something. What? Like, let, let's make him his son. That's and it's like, ridiculous. it's Claude Rains. Claude Rains is this, like you said, short, you know, very accomplished British actor. And then you, then you get Lon Chaney Jr., this mountain of a man. <laughs> it's like, do you, you know what's funny about that? Did you see the, the remake with, um, no, the, the more recent one that, oh gosh, I forget who directed it. I wanna say it was Scott Summers, but I don't think that's right. Um, but, uh, with Benicio del Toro and I know what you're you're talking about, but I did not see it. Yeah. So what, what's great about that is that they kind of kept that, they kept that wink in there because in the remake, Anthony Hopkins is Benicio del Toro's father. And it's like, how, how in the world is is Anthony Hopkins? Okay. Well, I'm glad I'm not crazy because I was like, this is so weird. No, not at all. Anyway. So yeah, yeah, that whole, that whole sequence of him just like dumpy doofus goober gomer pile to gwen be like oh don't worry about it i didn't seen you in your nether things you know just like you you were clothed this time but here i am i want to take you out on a date don't worry i'm not going to look at you anymore but from that giant giant monstrous telescope across the way you know it's like what this is so random Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, I I misspoke earlier. It wasn't Scott Summers. Scott Summers did the money, the mummy. Uh, Joe Johnston directed Scott uh, Summers. Joe Batman. Johnston, you know, all these. They're superheroes all the way around. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I do want to I do want to point out this is this is a like, but it, it could also serve as a. a t- <laughs> I like that you really want to distinguish this. Nathan is crapping all over this movie. No. I do have a thing that I like, and I want to bring it up now. No, um, this this once again features the legendary makeup work of Jack Pierce, uh, who created the the creature design uh, for the Frankenstein monster and uh, the, the makeup on the Wolfman is Jack Pierce's work. Uh, and I do like it a lot. Like I, th- I think obviously we've seen, as we'll see with the companion film where werewolf makeup and werewolf effects can go. But I think for this time period, it, it, it's, it's pretty impressive. Like I, I, I really enjoy it. And it is extremely iconic that, that image of just this sort of like fuzzy faced uh, individual. So the other thing that I kind of like, and, and this might border into themes, but, uh, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily dive us wholeheartedly there right now is I really liked the gypsies sort of last rites that she gives to the, to the, to the werewolves that die. I didn't necessarily specifically like, you know, uh, latch onto the words or anything like that. I just like that it happens. I just like that, that she goes and she sort of, you know, with the Dracula, uh, and the victims of vampires, they have to be, 
you know, sort of violently done away with so that they can be put at peace. But um, she does a similar thing, but it is, you know, through it's a gypsy, but through a kind of a gypsy's prayer, she uh, ushers them into sort of a peaceful afterlife. And uh, and I don't know, I, something about that uh, I found appealing, just the notion that this, you know, this understanding that this poor person's been cursed and coming and giving some ease to that in their in their final moments. Uh, I don't know. I just I like that a lot. So do did you have any I'm gonna guess the answer is no, but did you have any scares for this for this film? Um nothing that actually takes place on screen, no. Um <laughs> <laughs> Well what I mean by that is what I wrote down is just you know, this'll border into theme though, but I, I think anytime you at least attempt a story that involves an utter lack of self control, you know, kind of an unaware right, lack right. of self control. I mean, that's just kind of a scary concept, you know, to to play with. I don't know that I would say, you know, the movie does a great job with it, but, you know, I mean, I do think that's in terms of sort of frightening elements. What a, I can't imagine a more sort of scary way to live one's life. Like when you just have right. that, those sorts of, and, and, you know, I'm not even saying, Oh, there's real wolf men in the world. That's not what I'm talking about, but you know, just addiction, the, the inability to stop or curb behavior that, you know, is bad for you or self-destructive, you know, that's just a really scary sort of concept. So, uh, but, but right. no, no, nothing really actually in the film kind of accomplished Sure, that. sure. You know, what's funny about that is that I had almost an, not word for word, but I had almost an exact same statement that it's not a scary film, but the idea of Talbot realizing that something's happening to him that he's not in any control over um, is a, is a frightening idea. Um, so I felt almost the exact same thing. It's just, you know, the, there are certain things about Frankenstein, Dracula. There are certain things about that that even though they may not give us any nightmares today, you can still latch onto it. Like this is this is a frightening sort of image, or it's a frightening moment. Uh, Wolfman doesn't doesn't really have any of those. It does have a strong atmosphere. I think it. I, I love some of those scenes in the fog sure. uh, towards the end, uh, and you know some of the images where the Wolfman himself is just sort of running amok. Uh, I I do like those a lot, but they're not really they're not really very scary. It's not this type of thing, but but let, let's let's go ahead and if you're fine with this, let's go ahead and dive into theme, because I think that is where the real value of discussing this film lies is in is in this idea of I mean, the werewolf. We talked at length in our conversation about Dracula, about the vampire as metaphor. If if there were a monster that I think is even more just filled with metaphorical possibilities, it would be the wolfman. It would be the werewolf. Sure. Because I think that this idea of just like struggling with our own nature, struggling with our own desires, the sort of animalistic element uh, within each and every one of us, I think that's something that a lot of people can really, without too much persuasion, we can we can have a conversation where people can relate to that sort of thing. Right. Where there are things in you that that you'd like to do or things that you'd like to to be involved in even even maybe some darker things that we wouldn't openly or freely admit. Um, but we are aware for the most part of what's in our own minds. And that can be a very frightening thing. It can be, it can be somewhat horrific to, to try to acknowledge that there are parts of us that we don't fully understand yet. Yeah. And I, I do think that that's, it sounds like I'm just really giving this movie a hard time. I, I, it's not my intention, but I do think, I think I think the concept you're describing is stronger in interpretation than it is in execution in the movie. You know, like mm. in other words, 
I agree with you that the idea of suppression of, you know, uh, perhaps our more base desires and instincts is an unhealthy way. This is going to come out in some form, but the movie doesn't really do that. You know what I mean? Like you never, right. you, when, when Talbot comes out of his wolf experiences, you're never like, Oh, well that's actually part of him. He, he's just as confused as anyone else. Um, right. but anyway, I, I say that simply honestly to validate what you're saying. I mean, I, the, it gives kind of lip service when the dad <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, the guy who pays the bills or whoever this guy is, um, <laughs> you know, he gives this kind of monologue towards the end, um, when he's, and, and this is like you said, once the, those last kind of half hour, you know, it actually does start to flirt with some stronger content. Um, but he gives this kind of impassioned monologue to Larry, um, and talks about yeah. the good and evil in every man, you know, and, and, what I wrote down was just the integrated self. Like mm-hmm. there is a way in which we, especially in our sort of heightened plugged in culture can live very much fractured, you know, where, you know, Oh, I'm going to go dabble down this dark corner of the internet or of life or whatever. But to everyone else, I'm going to be gung ho and happy. You know what I mean? Like that's such a right, real. Right and constant force in the culture we live in right now. Yeah. You know, and just, and just, I don't know. I do, I do think in many ways, the concept of the Wolfman, I I would be interested is Jekyll and Hyde. I'm going to sound maybe stupid asking this question. Jekyll and Hyde is not a universal monster movie, right? No, no. I mean, Jekyll and Hyde had been turned into a film a few times, but I don't, I don't believe for universal. I could be wrong about that. I'd have to do a little bit of, of digging. I don't have the, the, sure. I'm sure that, because Jekyll and Hyde, let me say it this way. Because Jekyll and Hyde is a public domain property, I am sure that at some point Universal Pictures pe- tackled it. Right. I'm just not sure which right, 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 which sure. film was them versus versus a different studio. Um, I don't have that in the forefront of my brain. Right. But yeah, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde is um, is a public domain property, which means, of course, plenty of people have have adapted it in some variation. But you're right. It's it's and Jekyll and Hyde is a is a a book that I've considered, and maybe we still will at some point, uh, covering on the show, mm. uh, the book itself versus right, right. versus any specific movie iteration of it, because it, it does deal a lot with this theme that we're talking about, about struggling with the fact that there are things inside of us that are a bit darker. You know, I, I was having this conversation, you know, I, I, I bring up parenting a lot on this show, I feel like, but it, it's something where... Like, when you go through phases with your children where they, they're having some behavioral problems, and it doesn't necessarily have to be something rather extreme, just, you know, a phase where they're getting angry a lot, or a phase where they're, you know, having some trouble listening for the first time, or being a bit defiant, testing the boundaries, um, you know, what, whatever it is, something that you wish wasn't present there. And whenever we've encountered that, I try to, I try to actively remind myself that, whatever phase they're going through or whatever behavioral issue they're going through, that that may be present, but it doesn't mean the other elements, the, you know, sensitivity or the the open heartedness, the sense of humor, all of those other things. It doesn't mean that those things are no longer present. There's just something a sure. bit more in the forefront. And one of the things that I think is interesting about this, this Wolfman idea is that, you know, when he's not in the throes of lycanthropy, then he is, I mean, he's, he's every bit in control of his faculties. He's every bit who he was before. He just knows that there's this, 
this other side of him where he is completely devoid of control. And that, that's just fascinating to me because unlike vampires, where once they become a vampire, that's kind of what they are the whole time, right, you know, right, and any right. time that they're yeah. any time that they're in civilized society or anything, they're uh, putting forward a front to hide their vampirism. But that's not the case with the Wolfman. When the Wolfman is not transformed, he is not that thing. Right. And so that's fascinating to me to look at and to think about in my in my own heart and mind about there are, there are times where I don't know if we always want to ask it, but we ask the question that am I am I a good person or or am I not a good person? And what is the real nature? Like, what's what's the real me? Sure, you know, sure. you hear people talk about like, oh, well, your true colors are coming out, and it, that that kind of bugs me from time to time when I hear it because when people say like, oh, well, you're showing your true colors or anything, I'm like, well, it is possible for somebody to completely be a a fabrication of themselves to you to gain some end, you know, maybe to advance in a company or to you know garner a favor from you or something. But it is also possible that we have more than one true color. Sure. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it is possible that that, that both of those things can exist in the same right. person. Yes, yes. I think that's totally true. And I think it's funny, I didn't anticipate incorporating this into this conversation, but I had had I, I, my quote-unquote normal job is in sales and that can be kind of a, a roller coaster unto itself. And it's funny, independent of my work, I was reading some stuff this week about, you know, I've talked about this before, the Enneagram is a personality sort of yes. assessment. Yes. Um, anyway, I was just reading about my Enneagram and, and any listener who's curious about this, it's actually really powerful stuff and you should go check some of it out. But, um, I am a four. And according to my <laughs> wife, Reed, you're a nine. That's why we work well together. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> anyway, it was interesting, something I had known for a couple of years now, but it kind of, I kind of forget in my sort of more vulnerable moments, but in just reading this write up about Enneagram fours, it makes this note to, um, it makes a point rather to note Enneagram fours will, this is my language, not the language it was using, but the idea that you are not your feelings mm. and how we can sometimes forget that. Yeah. You know, right. you can, you can get so overwhelmed or overcome by a particular situation or, you know, a scenario is giving you grief or making you feel vulnerable that, that somehow this spiral, this sort of shame spiral happens of, of oh, this is, you know, I'm, I'm worthless. I, I have no value. Esteem goes out the window, that sort of thing. Right. And anyway, it was just a really interesting moment that I wasn't seeking this reading for that, but it was really, uh, snapped me back into sort of a right mindedness of like, Okay, uh, you're, this is totally true. I'm not these things. Feelings are just things. They are sort of right. independent of you that you, you, you sort of, uh, to me, this is the type of stuff, you know, when scripture talks about taking thoughts captive, like it's this, it's, mm. it's mm -hmm. the, the, the trouble that will come if you don't take these thoughts captive is suddenly you believe a whole lot of things about yourself and maybe about others that just aren't true and then act in destructive ways out in light of that. But the right, idea of taking right. these thoughts captive of, okay, wait a minute, I'm feeling low, I'm feeling vulnerable, I am going to remind myself this is not who I am. Now, yes, The Wolfman is a movie where more or less Larry Talbot is forever going to be a wolfman unless some sort of cure comes along, but there is a real sense in which the things that happen when he is transformed like that are not 
fully representative of the summation of who he is. Does that make sense? Oh, complete sense. Um, what it reminded me of uh, was you and I both love this book and we, we talk about it a lot. But uh, what Brian Stevenson says in Just Mercy, that that a person is more than the worst thing that they've ever done. Oh, um, such an amazing statement. Yeah. it's And and just remembering. Convicting I think statement. It's, it really is because I think we have we have this tendency to dwell on in both directions. We have this tendency when we like someone to I've, – I've, I've reflected on this. Man, this conversation feels like it's going all over the place, but it's stirring things up in me. That I've reflected before that it frustrates me a lot when a celebrity of some sort or a public figure will be in everybody's good graces, but then they, God forbid, make a mistake, perhaps a heinous mistake. Perhaps they did something that was that was absolutely um, objectionable and and even punitive, where they needed to uh, receive some consequence for what they had done. But it, it's always rather staggering to me just the severe pendulum of public reaction. Sure, where like when you're when you're in the good graces, then. Oh man, we're sharing all of your videos and we're going to see your, your films. We're buying your books. We're listening to your music. We're doing all of this stuff. And then you do this thing. And now suddenly you are worse than a pariah because you are like sort of subjected to public execution where now suddenly your, your image or this thing that you've done has now been broadcast everywhere right. and is and and people who don't know you have never sat in a room with you have never looked you in the eye are now making these heinous judgments about you and saying these these horrendous things and it, it is a little convicting to me nathan because i don't think that i i'm not i'm not really framed this way as a person it doesn't make me a better person but i'm just i'm not really framed as a person to be very despising of people. There's people I don't care for. There's people I don't listen to or that I don't follow. Um, but I'm not framed very much to be sort of despising as a, as an individual. But it does tend to, um, to, to convict me a bit when I have to remember that not only is a person more than the, than the worst thing that they've ever done, but they're also more than the best thing that they've ever done. Like there's something else entirely sure. that we are not necessarily summed up by our effects or our the, the the things that we have done looking at somebody who has done a heinous crime or has said an awful thing i wonder what i wonder how the conversation would change and maybe this is a bit heavier than we want to go but i wonder how the conversation would change if instead of labeling someone a racist that you you recognized if they recognized and we recognized that they that they struggle with racism I wonder, I just wonder how the conversation would change sure. instead of like, you are a racist versus what you're struggling with right there is, is racism. Well, what I, you're presenting yeah, yeah. is racism. I think, I think uh, yeah, and we're, we're a little perhaps far afield, but not necessarily in a bad way of the, the strict content of the Wolfman. But it's funny you bring that up because I feel like something I don't think we've talked about a whole lot on the podcast, but is this concept of the third way, you know, Jesus being the third way, mm -hmm. like. You know, well, right. are you racist or are you not? Well, it's really, as much as we might want it to be, it's not that black and white. Well, are you the Wolfman or are you just a regular Larry Talbot? Well, honestly, I'm a bit, I'm a bit in the middle somewhere. Anyway, the, I say that simply to say, like, I, another conversation with my wife, she was, she was feeling a lot of frustration over someone who had given some really bad theological advice. And, you know, mm. there are people who would hear the advice and think, oh, what's wrong with that? I am the person who would hear it and think that's ridiculous. Get thee behind me. But 
I had to have this conversation with her as she sometimes has to have with me where I said, because she was really frustrated and really angry about it. And, you know, was saying things like, well, if they were right here, I'd say X, Y, or Z. And and as you do when you vent right. to your spouse. And I just said, but then are we not just indulging these exact same things? You know, there's this, just this way where, and this is where the current cultural and political climate we're in right now. I am often having to bite my tongue, not even because, which I know you might not believe that, that I bite my tongue, but <laughs> not even necessarily because I think what I might say is incorrect or wrong or, or I would think is theologically inappropriate or what have you, but simply because I have to check myself and say, hang on, let me, let me take a breather. And if right. in 24 hours I still feel the same way, well, then maybe there's cause for conversation. But right. the third way says I can't simply, I can't simply wipe this person or this group of people from the table because they don't like what the things I would think or what have you. Right. Anyway, this is right. kind of a, we're, we're, how's the wolf man? <laughs> <laughs> well, and so, so let me, you know, with an eye towards moving into our David pumpkins and perhaps winding down, let me introduce the scripture that I had. And I, I was originally only going to read a couple of these verses, but based on our conversation, I, I want to read the, uh, a little bit more of the text. So I knew almost from, you know, before rewatching the movie that I wanted to bring up Romans chapter seven in this conversation. Romans chapter 7 uh, is a very famous, often quoted passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 21, says this. It says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And then verse 24, which I didn't originally plan to read, but verse 24 of chapter 7 says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then I think, especially for us as believers, we need to really remind ourselves of verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's something for, like what you're talking about, this this third way. This idea that we have within us this capacity for good and this capacity for evil. We've talked about that before on this show, that, that we're human beings and we have a capacity to do good. We have a capacity to do evil, that even the worst among us has a capacity to provide some sort of hopeful, optimistic change. And even the best among us can really do some damage if they're, you know, if they're not actively moving in wholeness and faithful living. So I think it's important that when we examine these subjects about the way people are, this is a society right now that we're living in where everything wants to be, as you used the word earlier, fractured and compartmentalized. Well, are you pro this or are you anti this? Right. Are yeah. you, you know, are you on this side of the fence or on this side of the fence? What are you going to vote for? Are you going to vote for this? Well, if you're, you know, if you're on this side of the, there, there can be no nuance to the conversation anymore. If you're on this side of the fence, then that means you're automatically all these other evil things. Right. And if you're on this side of the fence, then you're automatically all these other evil things. And people sometimes even, to my utter dismay, take those stances. Where then they just start using very definitive extremist language. And I so badly, I've said this, I think, before on the show, but if I haven't, let me say it emphatically now that I said, you know, you could have a conversation with me about any variety of political issues, social issues. You may find me to be pro this, anti this, for this thing, against this other thing. But regardless of what political or social stance I take in my heart and mind, I am always in the depths of my spirit pro grace. That whatever I am for or whatever I am against, 
I leave room for the Lord sure, to do some work sure. in whatever in whatever the situation is. Yeah. Pro-gun, anti-gun, anti-pro-choice, uh, what, whatever the situation is, I always try to actively leave room for the Lord to do some work in the individual with whom I'm engaging, whether that be a matter of, you know, just rattle off all of the social issues that you want to. It all still applies. I think I'm adamantly passionate about whatever stance I may take as a sort of a social stance. I'm always and forever pro-grace in each and every one of them. There you go. <laughs> I, I didn't know you were done. Um, you know, I, I think that, and, and it's hard. Like it is hard taking your thoughts captive, which, which you could apply to what you just said, you know, because it, it takes actual energy to be as in your phrase, progress, you know, like it's not, no, absolutely. it's not just this, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. It's not just this default position. Well, I'm going to give nope. everyone the benefit of the doubt and, Okay, you hurt me, but I'm going to trust that you didn't do it out of spite or or ill will, or I think you're wrong, but I'm, you know what I mean? Like you have to actively position yourself in a way that, because sometimes you're going to encounter those scenarios and those conversations where the person is pissing you off <laughs> and, you know, the yeah, situation oh, is yeah. making you angry where you have to suppress that. Um, and turn into the wolfman. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, this, this is a random. I don't know. We can, we can follow this for a moment if we want to, but I did have this interesting theme that's, that's uh, not hugely developed, but I'll throw it out there anyway. I was actually very compelled. I know, you know, we, we probably ought to wrap this up too, but I found it very interesting though. Again, it feels like the movie just, the movie has a few really interesting nuggets and it just doesn't do a whole lot with them. But the last sort of movement in the film of the dad's denial of Larry's mm. affliction. Yeah. And I just found that really interesting. And, and I'm going to use it in the wrong context. I'm going to recognize that, but I'm going to still use it. Uh, what it made me think of is the verse, the, the story where the disciples asked Jesus, um, I can't remember what's happened what lameness has occurred to the person they're referring to, but they say, Oh, who yeah, sinned it's a blind this man. man or his parents. Okay. It was blind. Um, who sinned this yeah. man or his parents? And, I'm going to take that idea and kind of run with it here because as little as the Wolfman in 1941 might have to comment on 2017 geopolitical international climate, I just found this real interesting conversation attempting to, to, to be made or discussion that I was engaging with from my perspective and from our perspective of the culture we live in right now. I, I think about the Dylan roofs of the world. You know, I, I think about the Columbine shooters and, and gosh, that was 20 years ago now. And how oh, you, you, yeah, there's yeah. probably a thousand other names you can add to the list of these people, these perpetrators and how we always write it all. The question in the story always gets around to how did these get, kids get like this? Thus, right. What role did the parents play in this? And, right. and I found the movie was just interesting that it kind of flirted with this notion. Like this dad is like, no, he's fine. He's going to be fine. We're going to figure this out. Right. Well, you, you know, you're okay. Just stay in the house. Like if you take what's happening on paper, in other words, just the text of the movie is this guy's out killing folk, you know, whether right. he has control right. of it or not, it's what's happening. And the dad's like, no, 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 it's fine. It's all going to be good. Don't worry. Nothing to see here, you know, and just this interesting sort of how responsible 
or not is that character. How responsible right. or not are the parents of Dylan Roof? I, I'm not assigning blame to them. I am saying it's a worthwhile conversation as we try to figure out how to be faithful in the world around us and to the people around us in 2017, right? Like, right. Oh, yes. You know, yes. there, there is nature, but there is nurture. Like you, you are utterly and totally responsible for your actions, but there are things that affect you that lead to your actions. You know what I mean? Right. Um, oh, yes. I don't know. Yeah. I just found it a really interesting sort of nugget that, that, that was sort of buried in the movie, buried under all the hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I, yeah, we, for, for time's sake, we don't have to, to wander too far down this trail, but I couldn't agree with you more that there's a, that's why, that's what I meant when I said that sort of the last 15 minutes or so of this film is where the majority of my, sort of affection for this film all hinges around what takes place in those last like 10 to 15 minutes, you know? Right. And, and dealing with his dad specifically, I think it's really poignant when he's tied up to the chair and he knows his dad doesn't believe him. Right. And he knows what's going on that he says, you know, take the cane with you, yeah, yeah. take the silver cane with you. And I, I don't know, something about that moment just really hurts my heart just, just for everything. Like his dad wouldn't believe him. He tried, tried to talk to his dad about him. Uh, about what was going on and his dad was so gridlocked into you know this one thing i think it's it's possible to sort of wrap a bow on the whole conversation i think it's immensely possible to look at situations like the the shootings tragedies that occur among teenagers or children and ask those questions like the you know like the man who was born blind who sinned this man or his parents that that he was born this way and uh, looking at any number of the social issues we brought up earlier. And I think it's easy to simply wander to the extremes and only allow for one possible explanation sure. for things and only allow by extension for for one possible resolution to those things. And I think the real challenge that we have, it's, it's an immense challenge. I don't know that any one of us in our own strength or, or understanding are up for it. But I think the immense challenge that we have as followers of Christ and as people who desire to see good work in the world and to see whole living in the world is we do have to to see the person. Right. Like we have yeah. to see that that's always consistently. If you look at the scriptures, that's always consistently who Christ saw when he looked at the person. It, did, it didn't really matter to him, or at least it doesn't seem to in the text, what affliction they were suffering with. Sure. He always looked straight to to who they were, whether he was you know, talking to someone who was suffering with a disease, whether he was talking with someone who was possessed of a spirit, whether he was talking with uh, someone, just a social outcast, uh, a Roman soldier, a tax collector, whoever it was, he always just looked at the person. I think that's the challenge that we have is listening to the Larry Talbots when they talk about what happens in the dark. Sure. You know, like sure. li listening to them when they're trying to reach out and say like, hey, I'm, I'm these cries for help. Hey, I'm struggling with this. You know, I haven't seen it. Uh, and we really do need to wind down. I haven't seen it, but there's been a lot of buzz about this new Netflix show, 13 reasons why. Yeah, um, I haven't, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment directly on it. Um, but I know that one of the, one of the sort of a controversies surrounding it is sort of these triggers that it can, that it can raise up in people. And all I want to say on that, I, I, I may not like that show very much, or I may really respond very positively to it. Regardless of that, the reason I bring it up and the reason I want to say is that we, we have a tendency to run away from those conversations. And I think that 
part of faithful living is we have to be willing to engage it. Sure, we have to be willing sure. to listen. We have to be willing to to engage with the conversation and to try our best to see beyond the issue to the person behind that and allow whatever response we have to to stem from that, to the rescue of that person or to the response to that person. Well, and, uh, and not, you, not just the issue. You know, as, as another bow on your bow, um, a double layer bow. Um, <laughs> but, but completely feeding into that is interestingly, the dad in this movie, what I'm trying to articulate here is we will often only see the person as we want to see them. In other words, the dad views Larry solely as his son. It's, yeah. He, and, and because of that, he can't see him as a whole person. Does that make sense? Right. And yes, so right. your point still holds up. It's like your his unwillingness to see anything beyond, okay, my son and, and the role that that has existed as for, I don't know, Lon Chaney looks 40 years old in the movie. So, you know, <laughs> however long that is that, that he's been around, that character's been around, but he refuses to to indulge the idea that there's more to this person than simply the right. role they have filled in my life. Right. Um, and, and I think for us, the challenge is always, you know, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a parent, whether it's your child, whether it's a coworker, whether it's your friend, like those titles I just rattled off. You have to be willing to set those aside occasionally and say, this person is more fully orbed than just that role. Um, right. because, Absolutely. because those titles are only in how they connect to you, not in how that person connects right. to the rest of the world. Anyway. On that note, yeah, Reed. How about the Wolfman? How about we do a little? You know, we've it's been a little heavy. It's been a little, you know, <laughs> we, it's, we've gone a little far afield of the Wolfman, but we came back. You know, we we went full wolf and returned, reverted back into Larry. <laughs> you know, like let's let's just bring it home with our old friend David S. Pumpkins. How do you feel? How do you feel? About I would, that? I would love to. So what we do with all of these films now is we uh, are rating them according to an aggregate that we've, uh, affectionately leaned on the SNL skit, David S. Pumpkins. Uh, we're going to rate these films on their style, their scares and their substance, and then, uh, spit out con- a concise number that uh, represents our feelings on this film. So I think. This one, I think I already know how this is, is going to go, but I'm going to go ahead and, and start with uh, with style. I think that the style for this film, I would give, as I already said, it's one of the weaker entries in the Universal Monster movies for me, but I do like the atmosphere. I do like uh, a lot that's in that last half and especially that last 15 minutes. So I'm going to land on a three for style. Okay. This is going to sound like I'm prepping for something super harsh. I'm not. Uh, are we do, do we do zero to five or just like one to five? Uh, you can give it zero. Okay. I'm not, yeah. I'm not suggesting that I'm doing that. I just want to know for future sake. Right, I'm right, trying right. To, so I'm going to give it a zero. No, I'm just <laughs> um, <laughs> um, for style, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go 1.5 to be All right. 1.5. Um, for scares, we've already talked about how this film, you know, just, just doesn't really, doesn't really have the punch, uh, anymore. Nah, I or can't bite, even, if you will. Uh, Oh, yes, exactly. Uh, so I'll not belabor the point. Uh, I'm going to give this a two for scares. Two here, two. Yep, two, two. Um, now, if there's anywhere where I think this film sort of obviously warrants the lengthy conversation we've had about it, it's in the area of substance. I think a lot of this is what we bring to the film, not necessarily sure, what the film sure. gives to us. Um, but uh, I'm going to give this a solid four for substance for me. Wow, Feels higher than I would have expected. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. Uh, I feel like it flirts very from a distance, like across, like in a middle school dance, it flirts. 
with <laughs> some substance. It's like way on the other side of the gym. Um, so I'm going to give it like uh, a 2.5 for substance. All right. 2.5. You give it a four for so, substance. Is that right? Yeah, I gave it a four. Uh, yeah. Right. Four for substance. Yeah. That, look, the, the, the metaphor of the werewolf alone and some of the things that they introduce in that, in that last 15 minutes is enough for me to, to boost it beyond the three that I was originally thinking about. All right. Um, so that means we give this a firm and solid five David S. Pumpkins. I think that is our lowest rating to date. Any questions? <laughs> but you know I, I, obviously it's a it's it's a a classic for iconography alone even if revisiting the film it didn't quite hold up or um adhere to the standards that that classic uh moniker deserved but uh but yeah five david s pumpkins from us all right i can dig it so um home, as we uh say on every episode the fear of god may be the beginning of wisdom but it is not the end of the conversation if you want to comment to us about how we're you know severely underrating the wolfman <laughs> or if you want to comment to us about uh any of the things that we've talked about on this show you can reach out to us in a variety of ways uh probably the easiest and best way to do that is through twitter nathan what is our twitter handle at the fear of god you can also like us on Facebook. You can post there or respond to one of the posts that we have. There's a link to that through Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter besides the fear of God? At the Nathan Rouse. You can also go to morethanonelesson.com, leave a comment on uh, this official post um, or any of the other posts for the episodes that we've done. You can also email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. It's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Um, you could go to iTunes, leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate that. But in any method that you re choose to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you, love to hear your thoughts on this or any of the other films that we've covered. And as we said at the top of the episode, as we're doing with all of these Universal Monster films, we have a companion film to go with this that's more recent, but deals with some similar subjects, perhaps in a different way. So uh, I already mentioned my favorite werewolf movie is American Werewolf in London. And for the longest time, I struggled with whether or not I wanted to make American Werewolf in London the companion film to this. But as we'll talk about next week, for reasons that I think will be apparent then, uh, we decided instead to go to revisit old Joe Dante from, uh, from Gremlins. We decided to go with, not also from 1981, The Howling. So as a companion film to The Wolfman, we are going to be discussing next week The Howling. Acquaint yourself with that film, and we will see you next week. Nathan, thanks so much for having this conversation with me, man. I appreciate it. Likewise, my friend. Always a pleasure. And we will see you guys next week. 